Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, president of Seamless Docs Federal, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. Danny, we're back, and uh, this is a signature episode of, of Gov Actually. This is a special edition, a milestone. I I didn't think we'd cross. We're we're in the double digits of episodes. Oh wow! There you yeah, go. Yeah, this is episode ten. Um, I mean, I don't think even uh, I don't even think the um, Terminator series got this far, <laughs> or the Police Academy. Police Academy. I think Police Academy Maybe. did yes. a couple more, okay. but. Uh, if not, they should, because that was a brilliant <laughs> franchise. But uh, so I, I thought that um, I thought that this would be the actual perfect juncture for us to stop and take a look back uh, at this journey over the last ten episodes. And I was thinking that uh, we just came up empty in terms of getting a guest this well, week. Well, that's another way of looking at it. Absolutely. <laughs> and therefore, we decided to scramble. But actually, no. I I do think um, I think it makes sense. I mean. When you think about it, we, we started this podcast like right before the election, um, and the inspiration was that, um, that a lot of the talk in the atmosphere was about politics, and not, not, no one was really talking about it through the government lens, through the perspective of the government worker, because and, and, all this change is coming. Right. Um, and then with the election results, it allowed us to, to have a platform to really talk about government and presidential transitions. And I think that's been a, a, a common theme. And one of the things we can do today is, you know, we're, we're, we're in it now. It's 70 days into the administration, roughly. Um, we are, you know, we're probably still technically in a transition phase because there's still a lot of positions to be filled. But I think, I think we're at a time now where we can look back and say, kind of, what, what have we learned what were what were we right about? What were we wrong about? As we were um, talking about some of the likely uh, realities and issues that were going to surface during any transition. Well, I, I actually think that um, over the ten episodes, and particularly through the guests, really arrived at some fundamental principles that um, ho- hopefully anyone coming into these positions, regardless of who won, uh, would would really take as kind of central tenets of how do you succeed, particularly in delivering government services. And and there's something that is unique and special and um, needs to be respected in the way that government delivers things that uh, I think that it's too easy to dismiss and maybe perhaps some of the lessons over the last 70 days is, is a result of people dismissing that. All right, well, give me an example of that. Well, I, I don't know if I want to dive into examples because then I'm going to take the show into the politics and personality. Well, I don't know. No, I, don't want, I don't want it but, to. Yeah. I don't. But I think some of the core principles that came out of the discussion, I think they're, they're really three. And one of them, the, the first core principle, and you'll be happy that it's, I'm, I'm labeling it as the first one because it's really your North Star. And, it, and that is that it's the people that get stuff done. The people matter. If you're a new leader, you really recognize that a leader is someone who leads people. And going and flaming the people as you walk in is probably not the best way to start your opportunity as a leader. Um, and focusing on people, listening to people, thinking about what they say, gaining the value of their experience and recruiting them to the project is probably the best way to be successful. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I think this happens across many transitions. Like, I, you know, I think we we have to make sure that we recognize uh, that that there's a certain normalcy to to these types of learning moments that every administration has. Uh, they come in. Um, they are acclimating to this the largest and most complex organizational structure in the universe, uh, and um, and there's some things that 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 get done correctly early on from from starting point, and then there there are mistakes that are made, and I don't think there's anything unique about this admi- this new administration in going through a steep learning curve at the start. Interestingly, I think there, there are common themes, like if you look back at the previous transitions in early, early days of an administration, I think you can pinpoint some common themes. Trump, Obama, Bush, uh, Clinton, et cetera, going back. Um, and, then, and then there's always new, new emerging uh, issues that surface as administrations move up the learning curve. I think we're seeing a mixture of, of both in this, in this context. So the second, the second big takeaway, I think, is, uh, is that if you really want to lead people somewhere, you should have some idea of what that destination is. You should have outcomes. You should arrive at what you're you – should, you should coalesce around some sense of what the outcome is, how you measure that outcome, and then actually build policies that deliver the outcome rather than just you know, dumping policies on people. Uh, yelling at them to implement them and being surprised by unintended consequences, or worse, being surprised by the fact that uh, they aren't implementable. Well, one of the things, you know, your point is, is that I think is that there's a collaborative moment where you are uh, outlining a strategic direction that you want to take the organization or the government, um, but you're doing it in concert with the people that are going to get it done and implemented, and so you can kind of jointly define the destination. But I do think it's important, this is a a point I'll make that I think is highly relevant to this transition, um, is that one of the potential benefits, and I don't think people talk about it in this term, so I'll try to be a little provocative and different here, is that there's a disruption that's very positive. Those are two terms I always think of when I think of it. Provocative. Provocative and different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am no, mostly boring and uh, uh, non-risk-taking, but, um, but I'll, and not that this is a risk, but I'll, I'll make a point that I don't think others have made or that I haven't heard, which is that there's something positive about the disruption that can take place at the beginning of administration. Sure. People coming in fresh, they're asking questions, they're, they're pushing into, into stretch goals and ideas that, that may not ultimately be practical because of some of the government realities, but that's okay because it's, it's kind of a learning moment for everyone involved and it does create, so if you, if you throw 10, you know, really bold ideas out on the table in terms of how we should transform government, how we should change this agency, how we should redirect. And and seven of them fall by the wayside because for whatever reason, they're, they're not practical, the budget doesn't come through, local political issues surface that prevent them. And understood, there's going to be some attrition of those ideas. But if three of them come out and they actually do shape government differently and have people really thinking outside the box and thinking differently about about how to approach a particular challenge i think that can be can be very positive and healthy for the long-term 
growth and evolution of government. I think people tend to focus on the seven, the, in my example, the seven that didn't work out. Oh, they came in, they didn't know what sure. they were talking about, and, and they, they tried these things, and, and, and D.C. and the government showed them, you know, we don't move on a dime like that. Um, and I, I, I prefer to take a, a more optimistic view is that people come in, they shake things up, and they learn, and, and, and sometimes within the shakeup there are outcomes that are actually positive for the evolution of government. I think some of the things that, that I'm hearing in the management trend, I mean, there, there are ideas in the executive order that are emanating out of the executive order that the president issued on reorganization. I hear, you know, just, just chatter that I hear in, in federal circles, like, how do we do acquisition differently? How do we do personnel differently? How do we, how do we reshape more aggressively and more fluidly? You know, the, you know, you can take the attitude, wow, they want to do this in a month. That's crazy. That's never going to happen. But actually, I think going through the exercise of what it would take to get it done in a month, whether you actually achieve that is very valuable to start to unpack how do, how do we want to reform government to be more fluid and agile? Well, and I think uh, a lot of the coverage around the recently announced Office of Innovation was kind of negative and pejorative. Like, well, haven't we tried that before? Didn't that... And, and frankly, those are those responses are the ones that I find to be the most uh, frustrating and debilitating when you do get them within a government organization. Yeah. Oh, we tried that back in 92, and this is why it didn't work. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I agree with you. I think that the beginning of an administration actually is one of the most exciting and important and, frankly, valuable times for tone setting, but also because it's a sprint. Four years is not a long time. Um, and one of the things I remember I regretted in, in both my work in Treasury and both my, my, my time at GSA was I kept getting talked out of doing a personnel demonstration project. So there's, there's these personnel demonstration projects you can do that, um, uh, that allow you to kind of do anything outside of uh, Title V out of the personnel rules. Okay. But Sounds you, exciting. It, but when, when, yeah, it actually could be really exciting if you want to change personnel. But what I, I was always talked out of it because it's, it's an 18-month process to just get the approval. And that's the kind of thing that you should start on day one, yeah. right? Not say, oh, it's going to be 18 months and then... Or maybe should it take 18 months to get the approval? Well, that's... But that's that was a, statutory, yes. And you should go work on changing that too yeah. at the same time. But the point is you should, you should start fast. Right. I I agree with you. But that gets to the third key takeaway, which is that the process does matter. Right. If you want to motivate people, if you want to elicit their support for an outcome, having a process for engaging them or at least listening to their reaction as our conversation with Heather Heather and the um, State Department uh, dissent channel demonstrated that if you don't include people on the front end, then there at least has to be some mechanism for them to explain to you maybe what you missed on the back end. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I'll make another observation. I think what happens is that what gets jumbled together in the dialogue and the coverage and the, and the discussion is policy and management get a little bit jumbled together. So and what I mean by that is... The new administration has some extremely bold and different policy ideas that generate a lot of discussion and, and frankly, some controversy because there's a lot of, 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 of 
disagreement on something like healthcare or the environment, this new executive order on climate change. And those are, those are um, you know, using, using the term I used earlier, disruptive, but if you're in favor of that policy, disruptive in a very positive way mm-hmm. for the policy. And if you're not, then disruptive in a negative way. And that takes up a lot of the oxygen of, of the discussions on cable news and, and other podcasts and elsewhere. Um, and people rightfully feel very passionate about it. It just so happens that, that I tend to, to be, and maybe you're like this too, I don't know, more agnostic on policy. And I, I actually, I remember um, testifying uh, before House Ways and Means when I was the acting IRS commissioner, and I was getting asked this question about the, the policy associated with um, uh, nonprofit organizations getting tax-exempt status. And the way the question was phrased, it was, you know, Mr. Werfel, Mr. Acting Commissioner, what do you think is r- the right answer? Having this this wide aperture of allowing more types of institutions to get this tax-exempt status or having a narrow aperture? And I remember saying, I don't have an opinion on that. That's, that's your job. Mm-hmm. My job is to just tell you what's implementable. Right. And then the question in my memory went something like, but you're the commissioner. You should have that, that, that opinion. I'm like, no. My role as the commissioner is really to just focus on what's implementable, not what the policy is. And I went home that night, and I was thinking, it was like, the truth of the matter is, is not only was I speaking from my role as acting commissioner, I was actually speaking as Danny Werfel. I feel, that's what I feel passionate about as well, is, is, is it's more interesting for me to really debate the management approach than it is the policy approach. It's just the way I'm wired. So now let me take it to the point. Like, so when people are arguing about this version of healthcare, or that version of healthcare, or this version of immigration, or that version of the environmental policy, it gets caught up in a lot of, you know, there's controversy and, and tension and passion around it. I get all that. But then when you start talking about some disruptive things that can be done on the management side, that should actually, in my opinion, be a safer space. It should be the type of discussion that can, can have a back and forth and say, okay, you should not put together the, um, the intensity and argument on the discussion on climate change should be set aside and we should be able to have a real robust discussion on should we blow up the acquisition system? Should we think completely different about civil service reform? Should we completely change the way in which the government invests in technology and thinks differently about the, the bureaucracy and how it's set up? To me, those are really exciting questions. And I, I think part of the challenge is differentiating them from the other more um, kind of controversial policy discussions that seem to dominate the discussion in the early part of this administration. Well, and that, that was one of the things I was always afraid of, that any particular kind of management strategy would be assigned a uh, political label. Right. So uh, there was a fear that improving, modernizing, streamlining uh, federal technology would be labeled a you know, Obama thing or a Democrat thing, and that right. there it was going to all get thrown out in you know a, a new Republican administration. And I, I think that there was a a real. I was worried that that the prior administration's legacy would be so tied, would be so connected to that evolution, that it would be hard for a new administration to embrace it. 
and and I actually see that as one of the positive things that's happened is that there has been a reaffirmation of a commitment. Yeah, I mean, there are subtle things that a new and all administrations do. There are subtle things you can do to distance and restart something so that it's under your legacy versus the previous mm-hmm. legacy. Mm-hmm. But they can be subtle and effective, and therefore you're continuing to move the train forward on digital solutions or agile approaches to hiring and Mm -hmm. just thinking differently about the relationship that we have with uh, Silicon Valley and inviting them in and you know because because if the Trump administration were to successfully come up with some type of exchange program between Silicon Valley and the government someone from the Obama administration was like well we started that you know that we were talking about and that's okay and in my opinion it's perfectly fine if the Trump administration can move that ball down the field, well, you know, 50 I, yards, give I, them the credit. I would rather the reaction be, hey, we started that, you're just repeating what we did, rather than that's a terrible idea now, yeah, right? Well, Before I, it was I, a great I, idea, and now you're doing it, so now it's a terrible idea. And too many of the partisan fights, you can trace, you know, some of the some of the fundamental policies people are arguing over actually started on the other side of the aisle. But because it switched to, you know, the other side, now they're completely opposed to it. And and my fear would be that best management practices get sucked into that kind of endless back and forth. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, like I'm hopeful there's limited risk of that because uh, I think we can, we've demonstrated from administration to administration that, that there can be a, a, a politically safe way to pass the baton where everyone walks away feeling like, okay, we're advancing these higher performing government foundational principles of of people and technology and process improvement, and we're doing it in a way that everyone gets their their rightful credit from administration to administration. But coming back to my my broader point, I think what's really interesting that's going on right now is that there's a um, kind of an aggressiveness, whether whether it's it's was in the president's budget in terms of cuts um, or this recent executive order on reorg. I think there's a there's a tone. Um, early in this administration, that we want to do things very differently from a management standpoint. We want to do it rapidly, and we want to we want to take it to new levels in terms of how we reshape government. Um, I think the the rhetoric here is is even more aggressive, and I, I think far more aggressive than uh, than I recall it being when the president when President Obama launched his reorg uh, initiative. And I'm suggesting that that may be a good thing. Because going back to my earlier point, this is positive potential disruption. And while some of it might end up on the cutting room floor mm-hmm. for practical reasons, this exercise that we're, gonna, that we're going through now and that we're gonna, about to go through is a healthy set of questions that should be dialogued. And different stakeholders, whether it's Congress or GAO, inspector generals, the management side of an organization, the program side, all coming together and kind of sussing out these very bold transformations and figuring out what's doable and what's not, I think that can actually be healthy um, versus versus if you came at it with, we're going to come at it with extremely incremental ideas and we're going to take baby steps here Is, that might, through the lens of, from a practical standpoint, might feel more practical. I th- actually think it's interesting to throw out the really bold stretch ideas and then see how it shakes out and learn from that. Is this kind of art of the deal negotiating tactic where you anchor way off to the you know right or left and then you know inevitably what happens is that someone's going to be pulled closer to your position than you would have if it had been incremental you know there's there's something to be said for that i'll, I'll tell a quick anecdote which was um 
um, at one point the uh, attendance at the CFO council meetings when I was running the CFO council was waning a bit. People like you, Dan, weren't showing up to my meetings. It was, and, I uh, just want you to know it was entirely personal. <laughs> and I um, had something better to do. <laughs> and I was coming up with different strategies to try to raise the attendance. And one of the strategies that I came up with was nothing like what we're seeing today, but was to, was to put into the agenda like these really bold things that were a little bit, you know, outside of the norm and, and we're going to have resource impacts and burden impacts, all kind of thought through in terms of positive transformation. But I remember my attendance ticked up again. It was a little bit like, is Werfel crazy? What's this on the agenda? This is, I got to go in here and defend. But at least I got people in the room and and got people dialoguing. And again, I always feel like if you, you know, the negotiating ploy, if you're out, you know, you know, if you're, if you're starting at $100 and you know, and they're at zero, and they were thinking this was going to end at 5 or $10 and you're at 100 I mean, you're, you're just dragging them along. And sometimes that can, that can have some positive impacts in terms of getting people to think a little bit differently and re-baseline the type of change they're willing to absorb. I mean, think about it in terms of, of reorg. We've talked about this on the podcast previously. I've told the story that I've been involved in situations in my government career where we tried to consolidate two offices, try to consolidate some real property. You've been there too. And you, you, you're going to move 10 people, 20 people, and, and local political concerns can, can stop it in its tracks, right? But imagine you put out an, a, a proposal that you're going to move 2,000 people. Right? And, then, and then at the end of the day, the reality is, is that you're doing enough change that it actually impacts 200 people. Well, if you start everyone thinking this is going to be 1,000 and people feel comfortable, at least it only impacted 200. I mean, again, you're, you're now, you've changed the baseline a bit. And I think there's something to be said for that type of approach to, with a positive connotation, disruptive government. You know, one of my one of my best professors ever, Stuart Diamond, taught negotiations um, at my business school. He said, if you can't solve a negotiation with a you know a small set of problems, make it a bigger set of problems. Yeah. And and the idea being that if you grow the space in which you're negotiating around, there's a higher likelihood of you hitting some equity that someone's interested in that you ascribe no value to, but that they ascribe some near infinite value. Yeah. Uh, so I think I think there's some I have another why don't we take a break? And when we come back I have another observation uh, on this on the on the early days of the Trump administration that I think is novel. And wow. Wow, well, I would come to that CFO council to hear what that. Yeah, is. see, there yeah. you go. Finally, yeah. I got yeah. you there. there. Gov actually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop Radio Network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop. GovActually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact. And Seamless Docs, the fastest, easiest way to move all your administrative data collection processes to the cloud. Seamless Docs helps make government beautiful. All right, we're back. back. I have been just... You know, over the last, I don't know how long that break was for us, 30, 40 minutes, uh, <laughs> I've been, I've just been going crazy. What, what's the surprise? You it's a hot take. I've got a, yeah. I've got a Danny Werfel hot take. I, I think you're milking it now. What, yeah, what's, what's going now on? Now everyone's going to be disappointed. All right. So here's, <laughs> here's an observation. So another um, 
you know, concern that's been raised in the atmosphere of this administration is that uh, that there's a, there's a slower pace than previous administrations in filling key political positions. Right. So if you, if you look at the numbers, where they are in terms of positions filled, and then there's a whole discussion and around who's to blame for that and um, Senate confirmation process, and there's, a, you know, there's all, all different opinions on it. So here's I have a different take on it, and I'm gonna, it's, it's a little bit more of a positive spin than, than others have provided, which is we've, we've argued on this podcast and, and you made the point earlier in, 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 the, in the first segment that people is the key. And part of it is the connectivity between the political leadership and the civil servant community. And when they are aligned and have synergies uh, towards the direction that the political leadership wants to go, that's the best, best place to see, but best place to be. And right now, because of the lack of political appointees, there's almost kind of a forced, larger footprint of involvement that's going to be required of the civil servant staff in order to execute. There's there's less, not there's less kind of like of a, of a middle person between senior political leaders and civil servants. This happens in every transition, by the way, because early on, it's like you think back. I remember the early days of the Obama administration back in January 2009, February 2009. There, wa I, there was this heavy dose of access. Me personally, because the Recovery Act was going on, I found myself surprised how much, and I was a civil servant at that moment, how much access I had to the office of the vice president when, when President Obama said, Sheriff Joe is going to be in charge of the Recovery Act. And there wasn't a large political layer of people between the vice president and the civil servants at OMB that had to carry it out. And as a result, I developed very strong relationships with people in the office of the vice president that had benefit and lasted for, for, for years. So I think there's an opportunity during this part of the transition where you have a slow, a slow process in place before all those political appointees are filled to enable a connectivity to occur between the civilian, civil service workforce and the politicals that can have a lasting benefit deeper into the administration? Uh, I, think, I think that is a, a potential positive outcome in certain areas. In oh, I fact, love this. I, was, I, I have I, the sense that you're going to disagree with well, me. Well, I, I, I feel like I have to. Please. Right? Or else it would, be, this it would be at least less interesting. <laughs> I did talk to someone who said, you know, look, if they don't fill the deputy assistant undersecretary of blah, 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 that's probably not the end of the world. It might and actually And I think that's something better. that President Trump has expressed interest in. It's like, right. you know, when he's, when, when I, it's my understanding when he's told me, hey, you have 4,000 positions to fill, his response is like, maybe I don't have 4,000 positions to fill because maybe we don't need 4,000 positions. Yeah, but I, I also think that there might be a little bit of uh, uh, explanation uh, as in form of cover for the fact that, you know, you know, some of these positions aren't deputy assistant undersecretaries. No, no, there's there's I mean, important there positions. Are, yeah, you know, there are there is a big gap between you know the number of people appointed, even nominated, even named, and what that list of unnecessary to necessary positions would be. Right. So I look. I absolutely believe that. Uh, I don't know that we need four thousand. So I, I, I'm. I'm very open to the notion that there might be some. I think downsizing. Two point eight million person, three trillion dollar organization needs more than fifty. 
Well, yeah, no, I, and I'm, I'm with you. And I think, I think the aspiration for the administration, obviously, is to move forward as quickly as possible. What I'm saying is, is that I see a silver lining um, around, around the process right now. And that silver lining is, is that this, is, this transition period is a huge opportunity for there to be a connectivity between the political leadership, the very senior political leadership, and the senior civil service leadership. If they're connecting. Right. That's the, and that's my point, is that, is that understood that we'd all like the process to move faster. We'd all, we all want those political appointees to be filled, you know. Um, that's, to be that's, identified. To be to identified, to be filled, and because to, and to, and, that's going to be extremely helpful over the long run of this administration. What I'm suggesting is during this period of time, I think there's an opportunity for there to to have that connection that that we've talked about it in previous podcasts. Like I, you know, and I actually remember the the line you you were, you were great. It was like I was like, "There's going to be this moment." I I, t- I said this aha moment. It happens in every administration where the political leadership says, "Wow, these people are talented. They work hard, and by the way, they're politically agnostic and they're willing to support." support this agenda and work hard for it. And you said, why don't they skip the learning moment and uh, <laughs> make it their first day rather than their yeah, last day. Yeah, they know day, it right, right up yeah. front. They should they right. should they should presume it. But I think right now uh, there's this opportunity and it's not gonna happen in there. Look it nothing's universal. But it's a big government, a lot of different agencies, a lot of different permutations of organizations right now with political appointees and civil servants. And in many of those cases there's going to be real relationship building, synergy, and this aha moment that I described. Certainly there'll be situations in which the lack of a political appointee is, uh, is creating a problem. And certainly there'll be situations in which that synergy between the political leadership and the civil servants doesn't happen in the way that I would love it to happen. Um, and, and probably those will be the stories that you hear about because that, that's unfortunate. But, but I just want to provide some levity to the situation and indicate that that I think the transition is is an important time to do this type of connections and when people say gosh the 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 uh, the, the pace of political appointees coming on board is really slow and that's that's a big problem in the back of my mind I'm thinking yes there are problems associated with it but it does there is this positive um, result of of forced and closer connection between civil, civil servant leadership and the political layers within these organizations. Yeah, when, and I also think, though, you, you stereotype at risk, right, because it is an agency-by-agency agency thing. Oh, totally, yeah. Uh, I was having coffee with a former, well, former gsa and one of the things he said that he really liked about GSA was you couldn't really tell the politicals apart from the career. Right, you literally yes. there was no you, you you would go into a room and you you if you really studied the org chart you could maybe figure it out. Um, Treasury Department, when I was over there early on, uh, I was going I was in the annex, right? So just being over in the annex and not in Main Treasury was at least some indicator to this person who walked onto the elevator that I must also be a, a fellow career employee. Because um, he said something about, boy, I, I hope I don't have to go over to the main treasury. That's where all those, you know, those horrible politicals are. 
And the person who was like escorting me through the building is like, oh, he didn't mean it. He didn't mean it. Yeah. And, and I, I actually think he did. Um, so um, at least, you know, to him, that was the perception. So it really depends on the agency. And in a way, it depends on the people who are in the agency, whether they actually decide they're going to make that connection, whether they're going to arrive at that, you know, that conclusion that you, you mentioned. Are they going to do it on their first day? Or are they going to wait till their going away speech? Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, I... Th- I, this is going to sound a little geeky, but sometimes I, I try to see the world through a normal distribution curve, right? And I think in the normal distribution, in the, in the, in the hump that's in the curve, most of most government workers uh, tend to, to be a little bit more policy agnostic, mm-hmm. uh, are excited to, to serve the mission of their organizations, and as new political appointees come on, are ready to... To, 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 to embrace a new set of marching orders. Well, or because they're agnostic, they treat people who are not with a little bit of distance, right? The non-policy agnostic, the, the yeah. true believers are, you know, can be a little scary to your average person in the middle of the bell curve. Because they're the ones who start, you know, changing a bunch of stuff. And, but, and I've raised this point before. It's it's case dependent. Because at the beginning of the Bush administration, and you know, of course, I was younger then and a little bit more naive about about the ways of the world. Um, I thought they were going to come in and and just be extremely, um, you know, just just have a very particularly narrow view of policy and not be open to. Um, a diverse set of viewpoints in helping guide that policy and that implementation. And I was wrong. I mean, it was proven wrong very early on. Now, you might say, well, that was the leadership team at OMB, and that was Mitch Daniels and, and, and the group of people that were there. And I, I, have, I have very distinct memories that are very positive of Mitch Daniels asking questions to really triangulate every side of the policy. I remember in one meeting, I remember him saying to me, Danny, tell me both sides of the, don't give me what I want to hear. Tell me both sides of the policy debate for this particular issue. And I just remember feeling so energized by that question and then also reflecting on how foolish I had been to think that they were going to come in hell-bent on a particular angle and not want to listen to some diverse input. Um, I am the eternal optimist, if if that's not clear already. Um, and I believe that most people who come at a, a, a policy job, a political job in the government, um, desire to understand all of these policy tensions as they make their decisions going forward and um, are going to want to hear from people in the government who have been doing this for a while, knowing that they have the authority to dismiss the pieces of information that they don't that doesn't resonate. Uh, or, or they can be, have an openness to being convinced about a different direction. But I think, again, going back to that normal distribution, maybe I'm crazy, but I think most of the world lives in the hump of that normal distribution. We just end up spending a lot of time thinking about what goes on in the extremes and listening to anecdotes about things that go on mm-hmm. in the extremes. But it's a big government. And throughout the government, I think more often than not, you've got political people that are going to come in and are going to have an openness uh, and a desire and have an intellectual curiosity to see what are the different tensions involved in taking us this direction. That's on the policy standpoint. I think even more so on the management standpoint, the operational standpoint, where, where again, it resonates with me to have kind of a, let's blow it up, the management side. And, and knowing that that we're not really going to blow it up, most likely, but in having that discussion, there'll be some really interesting uh 
uh, insights into what the go forward should be. So for the for the next uh, for the next ten episodes, um, what what are some of the areas you think that, uh, based on what we've you know what we've covered so far, based on you know this discussion right now, what do you think are some of the key areas for us to try to go find guests and, and get conversations going about? Well, I think I'm excited about about this podcast. Um, there's going to be a lot of um, interesting moments coming up. You know, we've got, for example. Uh, I think the, the the continuing resolution runs out on April 28th. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to have uh, we're gonna a potential. Debt we're going to have debt ceiling. Uh, these are not all positive things, but they're super interesting. And I, I'm hopeful we can bring on guests that can talk to us in real time about what's what's actually what's really going on. Um, uh, when you, you know, maybe have someone who was involved in the government shutdown negotiations back in April of 2011 and the fall of 2013 to describe kind of what are some of those tension points and, and also really what the, the, the world looks like for a government employee who is, uh, who has the uncertainty of a, uh, a government shutdown and how it's going to impact. There's some really interesting, if you're, if, if, if you're a geek like us, really interesting uh, assessments and, and discussions that go on in terms of who's essential or accepted personnel, who sticks around, why right. certain activities stay open uh, when even when the government's closed down versus, you know, what is, you know, if people think the government shuts down, everything stops. The reality is it doesn't. It's just interesting well, to and, illuminate that. And is that, that uh, there's been some argument in the past that that's a political judgment and that it's made to fascinating exact, discussion. You know, exact costs on the people who choose to you know shut it down, quote unquote. It's a it's a fascinating discussion. And, and, and then I've, I've, if you run into the debt ceiling, there's this whole question of prioritization. Can you just you know say, look, we'll get you later on certain uh, responsibilities or or. Um, uh, you know, contractual agreements of the federal government. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Like, I was at the IRS during, and you were administrator of the GSA, I think, during the government shutdown of 2013. Mm-hmm. So we both ran organizations and had to shut them down and then restart them up again and go through all of these d- decisions. And so... And it was, it was this... You know, I, I played a lot of soccer in, in high school and college. It was an own goal. You know, it was the government scoring on oh, itself, yeah. right? It was just... There was... I, 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 I'd love to find someone who could explain to me the positive outcome of it. Oh, no, no. It's, it's extraordinarily uh, disruptive in a negative way. I'm going to use the word disruptive negatively right. now. Um, but, anyway, but super interesting to, uh, to get this stuff out on the table, and I think we can have some, some guests around that. I think another type of guest that I think we should have is there's a lot of discussion on regulations, um, mm-hmm. And again, a very aggressive set of objectives that are starting to come together for this administration on uh, cha- changing the regulatory footprint completely. Really interesting. Let's get some. Let's get a former uh, OIRA Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs person in here to tell us what that means and what it doesn't mean. Like stuff like that, I think would be super interesting. So what what I what I think of when I think about this podcast is that um, it, this is like. We're, we're the car talk guys opening the hood and really digging into the engine. And, you know, 
Actually, you wanted to call this podcast Under the Hood, if you I remember. Did, I, I did. And or, I yeah. emailed you, and I was like, I got a better idea. Let's call it Gov Actually, yeah, yeah. It which really, Heather Higginbottom said is the best. Wow, it's really important that you publicly get acknowledged as, as having oh, chosen. Did I just no, do I'm that? just kidding around. I, just, I didn't even <laughs> realize I just No, that was, that. It was great. I think you're right. It was a great name, Danny. Um, but, uh, but my point is that uh, that a lot of attention gets paid to the people who sit behind the steering wheel and the direction that the car goes. But the smoothness of the ride, the speed of you know, uh, the, the ability to get to the destination, heck, the ability to get there at all, is really dependent on what's happening under, under the hood, the, yeah. the code name for this, uh, for this podcast. And, and I think that you know, figuring out what are those basic business processes that relate to the smoothness of the operation, the... Um, the predictability of the outcome, the ability to achieve at some speed the that outcome, those are you know those are the really those are the tough stuff. Though, but that's the really interesting aspect yeah, of work th- here in this town. And I think I'll close on this point. I think some one of the most interesting potential issues that might arise that is relevant to this podcast is civil service reform. And when mm. we had Beth Colbert on in our third episode or something like that, right. um, she was still the OPM director, and we asked her, you know, if you're queen for a day, uh, could write whatever you want, how would you redo civil service reform? I mean, look, it's not the top of the, it's not above the fold on the Washington Post right now as a major legislative initiative. It's like tax reform, infrastructure, maybe healthcare revisited. Uh, there's not a lot of chatter at that level on civil service reform, but I think that's on the agenda, if I understand correctly. And um, As long as it isn't just how do we make it possible to fire people easier. Cause well, that's, that's where we'll talk. You'll have a platform right, on this right. podcast to either talk amongst the two of us or bring on guests that can help uh, debate and dialogue what what all these civil service what are the tensions with respect to civil service reform because you know if if there if there is consensus amongst the policy makers that they do want to pursue a make it easier to fire people then that raises to me the question of like okay how do we uh, ensure that a provision like that is carried out effectively and fairly, and you know if that's the direction they're going to go. Um, so anyway, I think there's there's a lot of uh, grist to be talked about if the um, if we start to see civil service reform emerge as a legislative priority, either coming out of Congress or from the administration. Yeah, and I and I have to say that that's probably where my level of agnosticism ends. And I mean, I, I, I I'm, I'm not agnostic about like just bad, ineffective management policy, right? You know, you're not going to motivate, excite, and get the best out of a group of people who are petrified, right? And there's, I'm curious, you know, solutions like that, what's the problem that they're actually trying to solve? I don't think that they, they yes. I don't think people who advocate for something as simplistic as, as that really have some bigger outcome in mind. I am not agnostic on that point either. I'm a, I'm a champion for good government. It's what I, it's what I'm, it's what I think about. It's what I want to think about. I don't. I don't know that I always have the right answer. And part of that, I feel like a champion for the government worker as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my objectivity can can get tainted uh, because of because of those passions that I have in that particular area. But I also pride myself on being able to have. Uh, a dialogue and seeing th- and try to get out of my own echo chamber on that point and hear other perspectives um, and try to understand those perspectives and, and I think it would be really neat to get someone on um, who could offer those perspectives and, and we could have a dialogue about it. Yeah, I, I'd also like to 
dig deeper into some actual program and its operations and and really maybe kind of pick apart some of the some of the miracle or some of the stuff that we take for granted on on some of these basic operations and I, I think when people if they had a chance to look a little deeper um, I'm gonna keep doing this under the hood uh, <laughs> okay. they might be they might be um, they might be as uh, as impressed and surprised and um, enthusiastic about some of the incredible stuff that happens out there oh yeah I know I mean it's like I would I mean one of the the, uh, I was thinking about this the other day. Actually, this is my, this actually is my final. <laughs> is that there was there's in the news because uh, I am a news junkie, uh, and it's in the news that the president is not going to go to the White House correspondence dinner. And in fact, I just read somewhere, maybe on Twitter, I can't remember that that the rest of the White House staff is in, in solidarity is not going to go to the White House correspondence dinner. And I thought to myself, I'm pro- I don't know if I'm the only one who thought this, but this is this is a window into my soul. As soon as I heard that, I'm like. Ooh, maybe that means he'll go to the Sammies, the Service for right. America Awards, and maybe I mean that would be well, super. Maybe this is a window into my soul because I was thinking, ooh, maybe Billy Mitchell, the best podcast producer in the world, will be able to get us two tickets to go because uh, there'll be so the many empty seats. Fund. Yeah, I'd rather go to the Sammies to yeah. be honest with you. Um, yeah, definitely <laughs> going to the Sammies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so anyway, till next time. Absolutely, thank you. This has been a lot of fun, Danny. Yep. Thanks for listening to GovActually. We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at us at GovActuallyPod, or you can write to Danny at Danny at GovActually.com, or to me at Dan at GovActually.com. And if you haven't already, subscribe to GovActually Podcast on iTunes and write a review. That's how we get pushed up further and more people can hear about us. Go